Well, we um, put up our Christmas tree as a family yesterday. Is anybody else a few days behind like us? Hey, okay. uh, we put it up and, and we had a great time setting our Christmas tree up as a family. And I was remembered of my fav- about my favorite ornament, um, John Elway is actually my favorite ornament. He hangs on our tree. Uh, my second favorite ornaments, though, are ornaments of my kids. Uh, they are their first, baby's first Christmas ornaments. So on the top is Ethan, and in the le- on the left side of the screen is Avery, and yes, her face barely fits into the frame. And then Reed is the final picture there. And I'm reminded, I love putting those ornaments on the tree, or we do as a family, because I'm reminded that the moments are precious and they fly by. Those pictures seem like they were taken yesterday. And I'm also reminded of the fact that God is at work in each one of their lives, growing them and moving them forward. See, as a people, we long for progress. It's just wired into our DNA. We, we want things to change. We want things to develop. We, we want to grow as people. It's why we have things like the internet and the iPhone. It's why we have things like robots and rocket ships, things that we didn't have just a few years ago. It's why there are people writing about things like spiral dynamics and spiritual formation and string theory and habits and neuroscience. We want to figure out how we can grow and how we can change and how we can develop. It's also the reason that in a few weeks, the gyms are going to be full once again. Fad diets will be back in fashion. And New Year's resolutions will be declared on social media platforms everywhere. We want to grow, don't we? We want to move forward. Dallas Willard, in his great little book, Knowing Christ Today, said that there are four questions that every human being must answer And they must answer them either to their bane or to their blessing. Here were his four questions. He said this, what is reality? Number one. Number two, who is really well off or blessed? Three, who is a truly good person? And what does it look like and what does it take to become a good person? And each religion or each philosophy explores the answer to those questions in a little bit of a different way because we are people who long for forward movement. But it's not that easy, is it? I mean, how many of you have ever gotten into your car and were set to go somewhere, but instead of going where you were determined to go, you accidentally started to drive to work? Anyone? Do you know why that is? It's because your brain starts automating things. It wants to save you energy. So if you get in your car, drive to work enough, eventually your brain thinks, well, when we get in the car, that's what we do, which is great for saving energy. And it's terrible for becoming people who change and who move forward. And today we're going to explore part of Jesus's answer to that question. How do we live the good life? as it were. We're going to look at a pathway 
that we walk, the position that we have, the formation of our soul, and one implication that overrides it all. Welcome to the second Sunday of Advent, where we dive back into our series, A Way in a Manger. And we look at what it means, once again, to be people who wait well, who live in between the declaration, Christ has died and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. John chapter 1. If you have your Bible, will you open there with me? We're going to be beginning in verse 9, and it's on page 903. If you want to follow along in the pew Bible that's in front of you there and resonate, it's in front of you in the chair as well. John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Are you there? You're with me? Awesome. Let's roll. Here's what John writes. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so John is still talking about this cosmic declaration that the God of the universe, the creator, sustainer, maker of it all has entered his story. And he takes what we talked about last week, this cosmic declaration, and he boils it down to this question, what have you done with this person, Jesus? What's your response to him? See what John said in verse 10? He said, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not, say it with me, church, know him. It didn't know him. If you have an NIV translation of the scriptures, it will say that they did not recognize him. It was as though he was there and the artist had entered the painting and the painting didn't recognize that he was with them. See, the way that Jesus would answer this question, how do we live the quote-unquote good life? The first step on the pathway is we recognize who God is. But the scriptures are full of people who Miss the presence of God. Jacob, the great patriarch in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16 says, surely God was in this place and we knew it not. His eyes are open to the fact that he's been living and walking and moving and breathing in this world that is drenched and bathed in the presence of God and he'd gone about his days and he didn't know it. Reminds me of the great poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning where she said this, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest, they just sit around and they pick blackberries. <laughs> only the people that see worship. It's interesting because Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25 about some people who are goats and some people who are sheep. And he says, you know who the sheep are? The sheep are the people who came and fed me when I was hungry and gave me water when I was thirsty and visited me when I was in prison. 
And he says, and people will respond, well, when did we feed you? And when did we visit you? And when did we give you something to drink? See, see, even the people of God have a propensity to miss his presence. And in a world where we are constantly bombarded with information and noise, where the most recent studies would suggest that you touch your phone roughly 2,000 times every single day, where we live in a state of constant, perpetual, partial attention? Is it possible that maybe this is a fresh word for us too? That even if we've begun this journey with God, that maybe we're being called back to be people who recognize his presence because the reality, friends, is that distraction is our default, but adoration requires attention. It requires awareness. It requires us to be people who stop and pause long enough to recognize that God doesn't just show up on the mountaintops. He shows up in unexpected places. He shows up in the brokenness and in the pain. He shows up in the dirt and the failure. He shows up even in places like a manger. Maybe this season, this Advent waiting season, you peel back the layers a bit and say, God, help me see your presence everywhere. That's the first step. And listen to where John goes after that. He says this, he came to his own and he's talking about the Jewish people. Jesus is the Jewish king. He's the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story. He's the culmination of everything that they were called to be and do. He is the blessing to all people that Abraham was called to be in Genesis chapter 12. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But to all who did, what? Receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yeah, their expectations weren't met by this Messiah. They wanted a political, military, economic king. But Jesus came as a lowly, meek, and mild child born in a manger, and they couldn't handle the disappointment of the reality of their Messiah. Isn't it funny how our expectation of God can oftentimes prevent us from receiving the reality of him? But that's step number two along this path of how do we step into this life that, that God has called us to? How do we become people who change and grow? What's the pathway to it? And John would say, oh, you've got to recognize that God's present. And then secondly, you've got to receive. You've got to receive. When I used to think about this word receive, the image that immediately came to my mind was a charger receiver dropping a pass from Philip Rivers. But that all changed game five of the World Series. Now I have a different image in mind. My, my image now is of a man by the name of Jeff Adams, who was a Nationals fan and was in the very front row of the left field bleachers, game five of the World Series. Does anybody remember this? Jeff Adams was there enjoying a baseball game, game five, World Series, had just purchased two Bud Lights, had both of them in his hands. 
okay? And there was a home run that hit, was hit. Yondo Alonso, I believe, home run, 100 miles an hour off of his bat, heading straight for Jeff Adams, who's double fisting the Bud Lights, okay? <laughs> what do you do? Most people would drop them. I am here to tell you today, Jeff Adams was not most people. Here's what he did, both beers in hand. He shuffled over, took the ball, 100 miles an hour off the bat, in the chest, knocked it down to the ground. Here's his face as he's doing it. <laughs> knocked it down to the ground, somehow in the melee of it all, picks up the ball without spilling his beers, and he has it all in his hands. And here's what I thought. <laughs> I thought, I can't believe I'm using that illustration. No, I, I thought, <laughs> no, I thought to myself, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way most people want to receive Jesus. We want to hold all of our stuff. We want to just block the ball, block the story to the ground keep all of our stuff in our hands, bend down and pick it up and add the gospel message to an already pretty nice life, add it as a hood ornament to the rest of the things that we're doing and still hold on to everything that we love. And I'm here to tell you that that isn't the way receiving Jesus works. We don't just add him and incorporate him to the rest of our life. The invitation when Jesus came onto the scene, the very first message he gives is repent. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. As if to say, change your mind about the way that you think about the stuff that you're holding, the way that you think about this God who's created you. Change your mind in a way that leads to a change of action. And for some of you in this room, Jesus is coming at you this morning and he's saying, you think you can hold on to some of those pieces of anger and bitterness and rage and revenge that are lodged in your heart and receive my kingdom. And in grace, he's coming at you today and saying, not I'm going to kill you because of your sin, but your sin is killing you. Drop it. Drop it. And enter my kingdom. Live in this life that Jesus says is truly life. And here's what John says next. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to, what? Say it with me, church. Become to be born, John chapter three, to be born again as children of God. Born not of, the, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, but born of God. It's really interesting that we use this word adoption when we talk about what's happening in this text. And some of us would argue and say, but aren't we all children of God? I mean, can't we all just sort of link arms and sing kumbaya and remember that we're all part of the human race together and we're all children of God? In some ways, yes. But in more important ways, no. 
that sin has severed us from God. God is certainly the creator of it all, but it's relationship with God that allows us to walk with him as our father. And if we haven't trusted in Jesus to repair that breach in relationship that happens because of our sin, we are not children of God. So the invitation from the gospel that comes forth to us this morning is that Jesus begins to undo what happened in the garden. He invites us to once again become that we recognize and we receive and we become his children. Maybe we could say it like this. Maybe we could say it like this. God became a child so that you and I might become children of God. And I'm riffing off of Athanasius, the fourth century bishop of Alexandria's statement, his quote, he became what we are that we might become what he is. But remember, if you were here last week, you know that John is retelling creation's story and he's pointing back to what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, that they were originally designed to be children of God and that their decisions separated us from, separated them and us from that original design. And what John is telling us is that what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, Jesus begins to regain in the manger. See, Christmas is about regifting. It's about God taking an original gift that he gave to his creation that we squandered and we blew and giving us it back once again in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. Michael, the, Michael Heiser, the, the great theologian said it like this. He wrote, the believer's destiny is to become what Adam and Eve originally were, immortal, glorified imagers of God, living in God's presence as God's children. Somebody say, amen. That is a beautiful invitation. One of my favorite pieces of artwork around this Advent theme and Advent season is a little piece by Sister Grace Remington. You may have seen it. It's entitled, Mary Comforts Eve. Mary's in the blue and white here, and Eve is covered with her long hair. Uh, Mary grabs Eve's hand and puts it on her pregnant belly, I, I think consoling her to say, I, I know it went wrong in the garden, but it's going to be made right in the manger. We could do a whole sermon on this piece, but look just really briefly at Mary's feet. What is she stepping on? The head of the serpent. It's a, a not so subtle wink and nod to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, what we call the proto-euangelion, the gospel before the gospel, that God will come and rescue his people. Yes, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. That's the story that we find ourselves in. It's a story of adoption. It's a story of being made sons and daughters of the most high God, that this is what it means to live the quote unquote good life. The way that the apostle Paul wrote it to the church at Galatia went like this. 
Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. And notice how he connects becoming sons and daughters to the incarnation. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is Christmas. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. I want you to get a little picture in your head of what that word adoption means. I've asked uh, my friends Anna and Austin Nielsen to share a little bit of their story about adoption. It's going to be on the screen here, so check it out. Uh, My name is Anna Nielsen, and um, adoption has been a part of our life uh, for four years. And um, four years ago, we brought our daughter home, Mila, who's seven. She um, was adopted internationally from China. So early on in our marriage, Austin and I uh, worked overseas with a nonprofit organization, and we worked in Romanian orphanages. We just knew that taking care of kids that uh, didn't have anything was going to be a part of our lives. We flew to China and had a couple days to kind of adjust, and this is after 11 months of being in the process, and um, we, we met my daughter, and uh, she immediately was drawn to my husband, and she was also immediately repulsed by me. To have that utter rejection, um, I, she couldn't even look at me. She would just start wailing and screaming, and she was so brokenhearted, so so much grief, so much trauma of, of growing up her formative years in an institution um, and having female caregivers come in and out of her life and breaking breaking trust and breaking that attachment cycle that she could not even handle having another one another female caregiver in her life. I had to grapple with um, the reality of what would happen if we come, we adopt this child, and she never accepts me. This is what God called me to, and and I'm going to do everything in my part to win her heart. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to love her unconditionally. This is what God does for us. God pursues us. God wins our heart over. He, he loves us unconditionally, but perfectly unconditionally. And we reject him and we turn our backs on him and we scream and you know we do all these things. And I got just a glimmer of what that's like. Over and over again, we see in the Bible, God calling us to care for orphans and widows and foreigners. It's all through the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up. And who does he spend his time with? He goes and he heals people that are outcasted. And Jesus is telling us to make ourselves lower and to step down and to bring others up at the risk of us us going down. I can't think of a more lowly, demographic than marginalized vulnerable children so it's the that's where the church should be we should be in foster care we should be adopting we should be in orphanages we should be working with teens that are that are facing life on the streets if they don't have support Uh, that's that's where jesus would be and that's where we should be too preach anna preach I, i love this picture of The fact that God is like a father to us, coming to us, and and we're pushing him back. Can you relate to Mila? Going, there's a lot of pain in my life, and 
There's a lot of things I'm holding on to, and God, I know you love me, and I know you want to love me, or I I think I know that, but I'm just going to hold you at an arm's length distance. It's really interesting. If you were to see Mila today, she's a a very different person. She's become a, a child of Anna and Austin, and she's become a child of the most high God. And that did something in her. Remember, there's a pathway that we walk of recognizing and receiving. There's a position that we hold of becoming children of God. And there's something that God does in our hearts and our souls as he changes us. So in a few minutes, I just want to briefly unpack what we should spend hours unpacking. If you want to flip over to John chapter eight, Jesus is going to talk there in dialogue with the Pharisees about what happens in someone when they become a child of God, because it changes us. And here's what he says, starting in verse 39. It says, and they, and the, they here, the Pharisees answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And in just a few moments, he's going to tell them your father is actually the devil, which is a good way to get yourself killed. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And here's what Jesus says to these Pharisees. I know who your father is. I only have to look at your lives to know who your father is. You're angry and you want to kill and you want to hold on to your religiosity rather than receiving grace. Yeah, undoubtedly, your character reveals who your father is. And being born again as a child of God, it shapes our character, our real everyday life changes us. But Jesus goes on, and here's what he says next. He said to them, if God were your father, you would, what, say it with me, church, love me. You would love me because I was sent from God, and I'm here, Jesus says. Yeah, because becoming a child of God not only shapes our character, it transforms our affections. There's something in us that cries out, Abba, Father, the Spirit of God lives inside of us and testifies that God is good and that he's for us and he stirs our affection for us. The Spirit of God pours the love of God into our hearts, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And finally, Jesus says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. So so if you're born of God, if you're a child of God, if you've recognized and received and become, then there's something unique about you. The spirit of God lives inside of you. And what Jesus says is you can hear his words. It makes you distinct. See, it not only shapes our character and transforms our affections, but becoming a child of God, it establishes our intimacy with our Father. And please hear me on this, Emmanuel Faith. And please lean in, resonate. There is absolutely nothing on God's part that separates you from him. Nothing. He has taken care of it 
all. In coming to be born, incarnated as Jesus, born in a manger, living the perfect life, dying for our sin, being raised for our life, the only thing that separates you from God are things that are in your hands, not his. Not his. So maybe this morning you're here and you're going, Ryan, you're talking to me. And my call to you, my invitation to you would be just what Jesus is, is repent and enter his kingdom. It's beautiful and good and full of life. And when that happens, it starts to have implications for our life corporately as a church, but also individually and as families, because each of us is part of, if you're a, a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, you're a part of God's family, but you're also part of a, an earthly family. And that word family even just stirs up things in our heart and soul, doesn't it? For some, it stirs up thoughts of joy and goodness. And for others, it's riddled with pain. I'm reminded of Norman Rockwell's painting that was on the cover, drawing that was on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post in 1948. It was called Christmas Homecoming. And if you're familiar with Rockwell's paintings, many of them depicted this sort of idyllic, sublime human existence. Ah, oh, family, everybody together, everybody happy. I mean, look at that dude. And some of us go, well, that's just not the way it is. It's not the way it works. Our families aren't Rockwellian. And to that, in response, here's what Rockwell said because he was criticized. He said this, maybe I grew up and found that the world wasn't the perfect place I thought it was. So I unconsciously decided that if it wasn't an ideal world, it should be. And so I painted only the ideal aspects of it. And here's the deal. Your family's not ideal. My family's not ideal. It's not perfect. But one of God's, one of God's resolutions to your family's brokenness, to your family's pain, one of the healing balms that he wants to put on your family this year is you. Is you. See, because becoming or being restored to God's family lays the groundwork for restoration within our families. It was really interesting to me, and I'm gonna land the plane here, really interesting to me. When I was reading through the daily office readings during Advent a few years ago, and I found Malachi chapter four, verses five, five and six in the daily office readings in the Advent season. Here's what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Um, Malachi's talking cosmic here. Renewal of all things. Here's what he says. What's going to happen? And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I mean, Malachi's talking about a cosmic transformation and in his prophecy, what does he include? Families. Like, like normal every day. Um, mother, daughter, father, son, and relationships. I think Fleming Rutledge, the great theologian, captured it best when she said this, just as Malachi reaches the climax of this extraordinary universal prophecy, 
Suddenly, he narrows the focus to the most homely, most personal, most intimate circle we could possibly imagine. The destiny of the universe is found in the destiny of families. And so maybe this year, as God changes you, as you recognize and receive and become, maybe one of his intentions or maybe one of the implications to walking in the truth of the gospel is that you are launched into your family to live in the way of the manger, to live with pursuit, even if you might be rejected, to live with sacrifice, even if it's not reciprocated, and to live with forgiveness, even if it's not received. You know what that might look like? Your father, who's in heaven. You know what that might look like? The way in the manger. And I pray that we would be a community of faith that recognizes and receives and becomes and then is sent to be transformed internally, but also to be transformative agents in our families for our joy and for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Jesus, we come before you today. And in a world of sin and error pining, we believe that the soul has felt its worth that you've breathed on us life and truth and goodness. So today we just want to pause in the busyness of this season. We just want to pause and recognize that you're here with us. And we want to receive you afresh. And we want to remember that we're your children. When the world looks at us, Jesus, our prayer is that they see you. God, that we would live with a a love for you that just overflows to the people who are around us. And as we talk about being adopted today into your family, Jesus, would you send us into our families to show that the great love of the Father can cover even the deepest of wounds. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen.